Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The the idea of stakeholder capitalism starts with a very simple concept, which is that we rely on stakeholders for this business to be sustainable and resilient. Therefore, we need to take into account their needs. Therefore, we should talk to them. Everything that follows from that, we can get into lots of deep analysis, um, which we won't, but talking about how do you do that, right? And there are legal structures that you can incorporate um, and there are practical steps that you can take, but it simply starts with the idea that we need to be accountable to the people of impact. Well, it's great to be back with you here, as always. We're proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse. Neon Treehouse are the best digital agency on the planet Earth, and they are now offering Humans of Purpose listeners a free one-hour-long digital strategy consultation and report. All you need to do is email josh at neontreehouse.com and enter Humans of Purpose in the subject line. If you weren't already aware, Creole are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose, and their delicious healthy sodas are ideal for those looking for a bubbly and refreshing alternative to sugary sodas, or just a break from the booze more generally. My personal favourite right now is the orange passion fruit soda, which gives me the citrus kick I need in all the right places. You can get 15% off all orders by heading to creole.com.au and entering discount code Humans of Purpose as one word on checkout. As you may be aware, a new membership model is in full swing and humming along nicely, and current members including Andrew, Margaret, Ben and Misha are now enjoying great benefits via our Supercast platform, including early release to all episodes, all episodes being ad-free, full transcripts to every episode, my five key takeaways from each episode, as well as a personal audio note that I send across on every episode, and broken introductions to podcast guests. To get your membership and support our sustainability, just hit the link in our show notes under membership or head directly to humansofpurpose.supercast.com. For values-aligned organizations out there wanting to connect with our wonderful audience, we offer a range of sponsorship or promotional packages. We offer just 10 of these each year for guests to appear on the show along with a number of other promotional perks. To learn more, just hit the link in our show notes under promotional packages or head to humansofpurpose.com and scroll down to the middle of the page. Our amazing guest on the show this week is Andrew Davies. Andrew is the CEO of B-Lab Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand. B-Lab is the not-for-profit network transforming the global economy to benefit all people, communities and the planet. They do so through a range of functions, but primarily through certifying purpose-driven businesses that meet high standards of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. I really enjoyed this chat with Andrew, partly because of his background and journey, which is just really varied, unique, and interesting. And I also enjoyed his ability to reason complex concepts out in a very relatable way that probably comes from his legal background. B-Lab and B Corps have travelled a really interesting road here and abroad and are likely the major certification or peak body that has done the most to move businesses towards prioritising stakeholders, including workers, community and the planet. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andrew as much as I did. So absolutely thrilled to be joined in the Commons by Andrew Davies, CEO of B-Lab ANZ. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. 
Oh, it's terrific to have you. I, I remember um, having a coffee with you in the Commons probably in November last year. We had a good connection and just a good chance to revisit the, the B Corp and B Lab world. So I'm really pleased to have you. Um, I just want to say, you know, my experience in the B Corp world goes back to founding Purposeful in 2016 as a B Corp. And we were lucky enough to win a couple of um, best for the worlds in community and the impact space. And also lucky enough to connect with the lovely Mindy Liao, who's your head of uh, growth and impact. And she was on the, in our first hundred episodes. And apologies, Mindy, that the first hundred were not the best, but um, hopefully you can come back and <laughs> make up for that. Um, so, you know, I have been following the B Corp movement. Obviously, I've worked at Spark recently, who are a big B Corp too. Um, welcome to the show. That's a whole lot of information I've just thrown at you. But before we get into anything, I think it would be great just to hear a little bit about how you found yourself, your journey, and how you found yourself in the chair at B Lab. Sure. And look, it's great to reference Mindy there. She's still with us and doing incredible work and has this really deep perspective on on our history. And um, I've been with B Lab now for two and a half years came into the CEO role of, of our region and B-Lab is organised as a series of independent organisations operating as a global network. So we have our own board and governance for B-Lab Australia and now Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, look, my journey is a bit of a strange one, Mike. It's, it's um, I really resist the temptation that some people have to kind of reverse engineer the perfect career. The reality is it's a bunch of interesting and unusual steps. I started off in kind of corporate law and pursued a very traditional career in a big corporate law firm and then transitioned into a, um, a listed company in a senior sort of legal role. and In-house counsel of some kind? Yeah, and, and with a few other responsibilities. And I found myself as a pretty young person sitting in on, on board meetings in a co-set capacity and it was really eye-opening in terms of, I think, some of the less attractive elements of listed companies chasing returns. And um, I learned a lot that wasn't all, all good but always helpful. Ultimately, I, I ended up, you know, working in there for quite a few years and then my father-in-law became ill and I had to step in to help a family business, um, which turned into a 10-year sidestep, uh, during which time my wife and I started businesses. I ended up, it was a finance business. It had a golf course business in there as well. And so we ended up in the golf industry. <laughs> the story gets stranger. But ultimately, I learned a lot in the family sector about the sense of being the custodian or the steward of a business for a long term. It was a real... It wasn't just the size difference going from listed, but it was very much a shift in perspective from the short to the long term. And it wasn't necessarily a um, sustainably focused business. I, I, I'm constantly in awe of the B Corps that I get to work with in terms of their deep focus um, on sustainability and impact, and I can't claim to have that background. But that shift in thinking about a business more over the long term is quite a fundamental step and a really important one, and a lot follows from that. A lot follows in terms of thinking about your impact when you're actually thinking about a long-term business, uh, thinking generationally as well. From that, I ended up doing some consulting work and I started a software business. And You've done it all, mate. I've done a couple of strange things, um, none of which was particularly successful, but all of which was good fun. And I really just took a, a, a reached a point in 2018 where I was like, yep, I need a different step. This is not where I want to be. Um and a series of good conversations led me to this role and, and I'm still pinching myself that I get to do this every day, still get to talk to amazing businesses and it, particularly through the last couple of years it's been a point where there is such a growing conversation about the role of business and it's great to be a part of that. 
That's a fantastic way to start us off. And I think one thing I took out of that is sort of the non-linearity of careers. And I just wonder if you could speak to people because what a lot of people would do is they'll look at the Andrew Davies LinkedIn and think, oh, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. When you look at things in hindsight, it all looks like a straight line, but careers are very rarely like that. Yeah, I suspect my LinkedIn profile is not one that you would you would come to that conclusion with. In fact, I really grappled with that when I was thinking about how to change direction, yep. how do I communicate that. Mm-hmm. And and these days LinkedIn profiles do have a, an important role to play. Um, I think you, you have to come with a sense of, of openness to new things. And I think the traditional career path is the temptation to think I need to be increasingly specialised, increasingly knowledgeable in my area to be the sort of best or to climb that ladder. And it's really challenging to say, hey, I'm going to step step sideways into an area that I know nothing about. But what you have to remind yourself is that what you're building through experience is core competencies. Subject matter expertise you can always catch up on. What, What you need to be crafting is a sense of competencies, which both means what am I good at, but also what do I need to improve on? So that sense of self-improvement comes partly from a really good approach to learning whilst you're in a job, but it also comes to taking risks and and taking on opportunities that don't necessarily, as you say, have a linear journey in mind. Um, And quite frankly, I mean, my my very singular experience, which is by no means um, any particular lessons in that, it has shown me that any time I've made a change that that sort of might not make sense on paper has always turned out to be a really fulfilling and interesting move. So, yeah, that's well said. And I think probably a lot of people miss that. They see, oh, you spent a couple of months in this job. Um, you're probably, you know, a bit of a screw up or made a mistake, but I just think it's usually the other way around. You know, you got some rich experiences. Maybe it wasn't the right culture fit or whatever reason, but you've got onto greener pastures and you've also learned a bit more about what you're good at and your blind spots. So it can be helpful. Absolutely. Let's get back to basics because you did talk a bit about that kind of uh, conflict between short-term thinking and long-term value uh, creation in the in the business space. And before we hit up um, stakeholder capitalism and some of the heavier concepts, maybe just talk to me a little bit about what a B Corp is uh, and what the mission of the B Lab ANZ is. Sure. I mean, to start with the mission, we're, we're looking to create a, an equitable, equitable, regenerative economic system. Now, that's using a couple of buzzwords. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is change our economic system currently to one that creates, from one that creates a lot of negative impact to one that creates positive impact. We believe that businesses can and should have a positive impact in everything that they do, not just with the surplus profits that they might create, but everything that they do should be articulated towards a positive impact. We do that work, perhaps unsurprisingly, because we see a lot of the harm that our current economic system causes, the, the construct of business, the externalities that it imposes, are seen most clearly in, in a sort of series of rolling global crises. We've got a climate crisis. We've obviously got a pandemic still rolling around the world. Um, we've got a lesser known but still significant growing inequality crisis that is causing a lot of instability in certain economies and business needs stability. And we have an environment, a world economy, where businesses can wield capital to solve problems at a scale and a pace that most governments cannot, which is both simultaneously terrifying but also really exciting. So I think that business has not only a moral obligation considering the harm it's caused but also a really exciting opportunity to, to solve a lot of problems. Mm. So that's the work, that's the sort of context for why we do what we do. 
what we actually do in the first instance is is relatively straightforward. A certification is a is a trust exercise or an accountability exercise. Most people are familiar with certifications for products, like a fair trade certification yep. tells you something about a product's supply chain. Coffee supply chain, Correct. You know, provenance, all that. And or, a, or an organic certification tells you something about how a particular um, item of food was, was grown. Sort of like a quality and trust mark, the way Correct. you described it, yeah. The difference with B Corp is that it's a holistic certification across the entirety of a business. So it looks at a business's impact across um, its business model itself and the customers that it engages with, its environmental footprint, its workers, so its full policies in terms of worker practices. Its community is a huge area, uh, encompasses supply chain, but also the, the, the way in which you engage with your local communities and the economic impact you have. And then lastly, it looks at your governance models, which are really supposed to be designed to deliver value to all those other stakeholders. So it's a very wide but also deep assessment. You have to answer a whole stack of questions under all of those head criteria. And if you answer enough in a way that earns you points, you reach a performance benchmark that you can get certified, then you need to also embed into your business a commitment in your company constitution, which we might talk about later, mm, mm. to to operate as an overall public benefit and to consider stakeholders. Now, those two things combined together, the performance assessment and the sort of core legal element, are designed to, to design your business better. So crucially what it is, is 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 best thought of as a kind of design architecture for business so that your business is designed for impact. The actual impact that your business might have depends on what you want it to have. So you might have a particular problem you want to solve or a particular community group you want to support. But the way in which you do that is to design a business that's well built mm. for impact on a number of levels. Mm. Or dimensions. Correct. Yep. So, so the certification element comes in where we actually verify performance. So any business can use our tools. We have a B impact assessment. Um, that's where you can answer, answer all these questions. Um, then the verification piece comes in where we will actually engage one-to-one with you to assess and demand evidence that you meet those performance. And that's where the rigor comes in. The challenge of achieving certification is you can't just talk the talk. You've got to have the policy and practice in place. You've got to earn the badge. Correct. <laughs> And um, I talk to a lot of people who are going through certification, have been through it before or anticipating it, and they, they just look like sometimes they're at wit's end and, they're, they're, you know, it's just a, it's quite a rigorous process. But, I mean, the way I experienced it when I um, went through my first certification uh, when I had my own business was that it was a really good exercise in organisational development. Um, I wonder if you get that feedback from other companies or whether they just sort of see it as trust mark focused. No, look, absolutely. And I think that those that come into it looking for that that trust mark. So trust mark, you know, it's about differentiating yourself. It's about saying, hey, this isn't just a marketing claim. Um, I'm backed up by someone else. But the 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 truth is you're completely right. So many businesses might go into it thinking that that's what it is, but then find, hang on, I'm having to answer a whole lot of questions about my employment practices or um, I'm, I'm, I'm tackling issues in my supply chain that I didn't think were necessary. For instance, businesses with a with an outsourced manufacturing um, element, the conversation doesn't stop at the contract. Um, we look for practices as to how you work with that manufacturer to ensure compliance with codes of conduct or other elements. Um, and we've you know you do get some businesses saying, hang on, I've, I've outsourced that, that's not my problem. And we say, well, that's not the way it works. You need to go deeper. So that that organizational development piece is a, is a huge 
value add. It's basically like getting a, um, a sustainability or an ethics consultant in to just do a full review of your business and tell you what to do mm-hmm. next to be better. Yeah, correct. I mean, which is just incredible value because you really, you know, whatever the fee is, you're going through a process to get the trust mark, but you get all this added value, I think, is part of that. And for me, that was certainly um, something that was probably um, underappreciated. Mm. But it's a great and, thing. And look, importantly, it's the, the impact assessment also asks you the questions, does not necessarily provide the answers. So it's not a yep. Wikipedia of... Consulting 101. Uh, well, correct. Ask it's, questions you don't have answers to yet. Correct. So it's not like you can just download the latest DEI policy, plug mm-hmm. it in, earn some points and off you go. Mm. It does have directions to resources, but the, what I think is particularly powerful about it is that it asks questions about what you might do. You can answer them, and then when it comes to the verification process, the way in which you do that can be completely unique to your business. So it's not a tick the box. It's not a sort of plug and play, here you go, just do this and you can get certified, mm. um, which does translate to a very challenging process because we have to invest the time in working with you as an individual business. Yep. But I think there's a lot of value in, in recognising that businesses do things differently. Absolutely. And what can we say about the size or the growth of the B Corp market in Australia as compared to overseas? And also, what are the benefits that um, new B Corps are seeing as a result of their B Corp certification? Sure. So in terms of that growth profile, there's there's 4,600 plus certified B Corporations globally, of which there's about 370 um five odd in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand as of this week. So that's like punching above our weight a bit? Yeah, look, it's 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 consistently sat around that sort of 10%-ish of yep. the global pool. Mm-hmm. Um, the Interestingly, it took the global, um, it took us globally 15 years to start this and get to 4,000 certified B Corps, a mark that we passed last year. And in the last 15 months, we've had more than 4,000 submissions or applications to get certified. So it's hot now. Very, very high demand, mm. and we're seeing the same demand in our region as well. So that must tell you something about, you know, the value that you're providing to those who have been through the process. Yeah, and I think also the pressure on businesses to be better. Um, and you, you, you talked about that value. I mean, traditionally, again, a certification is sometimes all about differentiation. So show me that I'm different and give me a, a trust mark, prove it. But increasingly we see different types of businesses get different values. So businesses that rely on a highly skilled workforce, employee engagement and retention is a huge driver. Yeah. Uh, particularly businesses that are really smart about the way they engage their employees and think about we want our employees to be helping us be better. Something like a B-Corp certification is a great way to give them a framework to work to. So employee engagement is huge. We see a lot of um, value around the idea of just asking questions of a business that they have not yet asked of themselves. So yep. a lot of businesses will have a really strong environmental perspective. They've got their environmental footprint completely under control. But then we're asking them questions about yeah, diversity, equity and inclusion. They're like, oh, we haven't got to that yet. So it can often uncover the areas in a business that um, it's not yet really thought about. Then we've also finding really interestingly in the, through the last two years, there's there's a lot of evidence coming out about ESG, so that's environment, social governance mm-hmm. frameworks, um, adding to businesses' resilience. And that's through better relationships with customers, employees again, but also investors mm. at a time when there's never been more uncertainty and pressure on business in the last couple of years. And we're seeing that through things like uh, global finance providers uh, working increasingly with sustainability-linked loans, so they're debt facilities that are actually linked to sustainability outcomes in terms of lower cost of credit now, the financiers don't do that just to be nice. They mm. do that because they recognise there's a lower risk profile here if this business is managing its ESG. Mm. 
So it's a, to me there's, there's a constantly evolving set of value, but ultimately it's up to each individual business to decide why are we getting certified and what are we going to do with it and that's what drives the value. Do people who want or are considering B Corp certification ever ask for sort of the business case, like give me the hard numbers, like what is the average increase in revenue I could expect or what is my... I do get that Um, and I get that more often from investors, interestingly, who often will will show up for some of those early conversations. The other one is what's your brand awareness? So it is a trust mark, so we have our own brand. We encourage businesses to use that when they get certified and so the question is, well, what's your brand awareness? And when I first started in the role, I was like, oh, that's a really good question. What is our brand awareness? Yeah. And I've realised with a bit of experience that our brand awareness comes from B Corps using it, talking about it. Their brand reach is always going to be far greater than ours. We're a small not-for-profit with a small budget. We're mm. never going to be able to take out mainstream advertising. In the environment and sustainability space within business, B Corps very well understood. Yeah. Amongst general consumers, well, those who are interested in certain sets. So outdoor apparel uh, with the brand leadership of Patagonia mm. and Kathmandu here, it would probably be reasonably high. In other areas, it would be very low. And so we don't talk about brand awareness as something that we deliver. It's something that you can create by telling the story. And again, the B Corp bit comes in as credibility. So I think that kind of ROI or that bump in sales, I've, I've, I've got a lot more confidence in saying, well, quite frankly, you can derive a huge bump in sales because I'm confident that if you talk about why your business exists and the impact it has, you will get better engagement. Yeah, it's, it's really about sort of the purpose and the mission uh, that's driving the increased value. And I think we've seen across the board that companies that invest in ESG initiatives often have a certain premium on the return over stock prices and mm-hmm. revenue. So we, we kind of anecdotally know all of this and it's just, I guess, being seen now in the sector. But as I look at you across the table, I'm, I'm interested because we're both kind of mirroring each other a bit. You've got the Patagonia top. I'm not wearing mine today, but got many. We're both wearing all birds shoes. So we're kind of, you know, and you walk around the commons, that's the uniform. Well, the commons itself is a B Corp. That's right. Good point. Um, but everyone within that B Corp is doing B Corpy things without kind of really making the connection maybe. But it's just interesting to see how once you do connect the dots a bit and you think, what do these companies have in common? It's little things like Patagonia, I buy their shorts, and I know this is a bit of a diversion, but just trust me, this is this is worth it. Um, you know, pa- Patagonia just have this new policy that they don't want you to throw away any clothing. So if you get a rip or you spill some coffee on your Patagonia shirt, you just take it to a store and they'll replace it. How good's that for it's the amazing. planet, for everyone? I mean, it just makes me feel fantastic about wearing it and um, – no endorsement from Patagonia to date on the podcast, so no paid promotion. Just just saying that I just, as a person who does fall in love with brands, it's easier to fall in love with brands that happen to be B Corps like all birds in Patagonia, yeah. Yeah, it gives you a lot more to love, doesn't it? Yeah, it makes you just look, the pride of wearing it and knowing that it's responsible. It just sort of, it kind of just eliminates guilt where I think you talked before about the externalities that businesses create. And I think... Maybe this is a good point to talk about stakeholder capitalism and sort of how it's different to your traditional shareholder model of um, company value. Can you just sort of like expand in in general terms on that and we'll have a bit of back and forth? Well, I think we can thank our our old friend Milton Friedman who 50 years ago, pretty much exactly 51 years ago, wrote uh, in the New York Times his big essay about the social purpose of business is to drive returns to shareholders and otherwise more or less comply with the law. Yep. Um, Now, Friedman alone isn't accountable for this doctrine, but it largely gets attributed to him and it sometimes also gets called the doctrine of shareholder primacy. Yep. 
fundamentally what it is is the idea that in business we are primarily accountable to our shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, often it's expressed as, you know, um, the last the last line of thinking. It always has to be returns to shareholders. But realistically it's been the fig leaf that has covered up any amount of um, harm and damage and problems that have been caused by business for the last 50 years because the reality is that's when it gets wheeled out. It's like, well, how do you justify this terrible outcome? Well, it, it's, you know, I was focused on driving returns to shareholders. Mm. Any business intrinsically and I think pretty obviously relies on more than just shareholders therefore should be accountable to those it relies on. Mm. And the idea that some people have in business that, well, our job is to comply with the law and it's up to the law to, you know, put whatever obligations on us. I've got two problems with that. One is that it's not how humans work. Mm. There are any number of grey spaces that we operate in in our lives mm. and we need to be able to navigate those, which is what ethics is all about. And two, they seem to be the same kind of people who also like to routinely call for the cutting of red tape. <laughs> um, so in one sense you say, I'll, I'll comply with the law, but then you lobby for the law to constantly be less. Yep. And I think that the um, the idea of stakeholder capitalism starts with a very simple concept, which is that we rely on stakeholders for this business to be sustainable and resilient. Therefore, we need to take into account their needs. Therefore, we should talk to them. One, everything that follows from that, we can get into lots of deep analysis, um, which we won't, but talking about, well, well, how do you do that, right? And there are legal structures that you can incorporate um, and there are practical steps that you can take, but it simply starts with the idea that we need to be accountable to the people that we impact. And it just makes intuitively a lot of sense that if you treat your suppliers well and your community well and your, your workers well, then you're going to do better. Well, look at the orthodoxies of the last 20 years that have been turned on their head in yep. two years, you know, long stretch supply chains with bottom dollar prices and no real understanding of who's making your stuff. Yep. Ten years ago, that was what we were all, you know, saying was good business. Um, now it's about like supply, deep supply relationships. Completely. And, and that, reciprocity partnerships. And it's not because we've just woken up and decided to be nice. It's because we've recognised that those relationships need to be strong to deal with uncertainty. The global pandemic has just taught us so much about what risk can look like. I, I deeply hope that, that that's an enduring lesson and that mm. we don't sort of get through the pandemic and go, well, that's a 100-year event, so I've got 98 years to go. Don't worry about <laughs> it. But I think the lessons have been really profound and I think the change that we're seeing will be enduring and it's much deeper than a, than a management ethos. Oh, it's a nice thing to do. It's, it's, it's a very deep reconsidering of the role of business. And we're really seeing, um, you know, you talked to me earlier about uh, Larry Fink from BlackRock and his declaration about, um, you know, the need for stakeholder-driven value and capitalism, very important, but also some major organisations playing in that space too. You've got um, Danone, you've got um, Ben & Jerry's, um, some of the really big players, Unilever as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So some really big players in the space also um, recognising that. And one thing that comes to mind for me that's a really good kind of – maybe it's an allegory for why it's important to understand stakeholder value, is Trader Joe's had this um, study that they did where they tried to figure out the age-old question, you know, does value, does the most value for the company come from the relationship between the company and its buyers or customers or the relationship with its staff? And it's a very controversial management question. And what they found was by treating their staff better, their customers were a lot happier, spent more money at Trader Joe's and everyone did better. So if you even take that as one dimension of why this instrumentally makes sense, I think that's a pretty good start. Absolutely. I think Edelman Trust Barometer last year came out with a report about this shift in um, 
they did some really interesting work and this was a shift in, in they talk a lot about trust. Um, we love the Edelman Trust the Barometer. Yes. It's fantastic. But last year I think they, they shifted employees to the most important stakeholder for business mm. ahead of customers for the yep. first time. Um, so I think that that's a consistent point we're seeing in other fronts. But the reality is as well where they rank is probably not that important. Mm. Um, it's fair to say they're both important along with, um, you know, the local community invite that you work in, the environment that you rely on. Um, and it's that sense of having a wider lens that does challenge some businesses. But again, I would suggest that most businesses do this to a degree. It's only the leaders that are comfortable being accountable for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so I'm curious maybe to ask you just about, and this is a very hard question for, to ask someone in your position, but who are the sort of newish crop of B Corps coming through or the ones in the past few years that kind of excite you the most or you think about and it's sort of kind of being like really exciting entrance into the space? Look, the biggest trend we're seeing, Mike, is very large complex businesses achieving certification. Um, we had Kiwi Bank recently in uh, New Zealand, a very large financial institution. We've had other large financial institutions come through in Australia, certainly in the mutuals and the co-op. Um, Customer-owned banking sector has been a real... Beyond Bank's been a good one. Yep, Beyond Bank Australia, um, Teachers Mutual, just very recently certified. Um in the last week or so, so that's really exciting as well. They're complex organisations and therefore the process to achieve certification is inherently very challenging. But they're doing it for, I think, some really important reasons um, and, it, again, it comes down to this sense of we want to be accountable for the conversations that we're having. So if it's a marketing conversation about how we operate, we need to be able to back that up. But it goes a lot deeper than just limiting it to a marketing conversation. It goes to the sort of DNA of these businesses that have often come from different backgrounds or have got people behind them that are much more comfortable with the idea of greater accountability. Then there's also the innovators. So a um, recent example, again, just off the top of my head is Scratch Pet Food, Pet Food got mm. certified recently, love a dog food company getting yeah, certified. Yeah, it's great. Um, and they're just a really interesting example of a business that that has a really robust focus on creating a great product, but not just a product that will sell, a product that every level of its production, distribution, um, uh, and and consumption is is going to add value and be good and they've built a really interesting tech model around a subscription way to, to to buy dog food so some of these companies that come through um are blowing me away in terms of the innovation um particularly those kind of product oriented problem solving mm. businesses we still have this huge diversity we still have plenty of services businesses coming through um, uh, one that stands out for me is uh, old mate Michelle Varco from Gembridge. Uh, yep. Just finished their certification, so shout out to Michelle and Callum, and well done on that. Uh, they're a fantastic little recruitment uh, firm, and it, it's great to see places like that taking B Corp very seriously and sort of changing their model to reflect, you know, general adherence to that proposition. Yeah, and look, it, it, I love the fact that it continues to be a movement of very small businesses alongside the newer generation of very large ones. It makes it a really dynamic and pretty challenging community to work with. But the fact is that's what makes it, a, I mean, that's what I love about my job. But it, it also, I think, speaks to um, the potential for any business to do better and then to be accountable for that. 
a fair while ago, the priorities were pretty squarely aimed at trying to change company legislation to introduce benefit corporations to Australia. Yep. Is that something that B-Lab ANZ is still pursuing? And if not, what's changed? Sure. So let's try and tackle this one without going too deep into lawyer land. Um, <laughs> we, we, we promised we'll call each other out if we feel that it's sliding. Absolutely. Look, Benefit Corporation, just to explain what that is, um, it's a concept that developed in the US to create a, a, a different type of company, effectively. In the US, there's um, much more clear law that forces the directors of companies to prioritise shareholders. In Australia, our director's duties are a little bit more general in their crafting, yet the, and the most relevant duty amongst a few is to act in the best interests of the company as a whole. And historically in Australia, that's been interpreted as in the interests of shareholders and, in fact, in their financial interests. But it doesn't say that, and the reality is our director's duties evolve with common practice. What the benefit corporation model does is specifically allow a director to consider stakeholders. And in the US, that's really important as a permissive or an enabling regime. And therefore, they had to pursue changes in corporate law to introduce that company form to make that possible. When we first started out in Australia, it was a little bit uncertain as to what could be done by directors. And so we were pursuing that model. But alongside lobbying governments to change the Corporations Act, which is a long, slow process, we found increasing evidence that a lot more businesses and directors were already thinking about stakeholders and elevating purpose in lots of different models. And we've really seen a shift from um, not-for-profits and social enterprises. There's lots of labels in this space, but the reality is we're seeing a lot of for-profit, for-purpose business. Yeah, it's just happening organically and naturally. Correct. So we went back to the drawing board sort of 18 months ago and said, let's revisit what's possible and think about what's the right framing to achieve the outcome we want. And we rested, we came back to the conclusion that the legislation we were seeking is no longer necessary but we now require B Corps to amend their company constitution to put a clause in that specifically says we will we will look to achieve a public benefit alongside profit and we will consider stakeholders in our highest level decision-making. By putting in the constitution, you're actually lining up and getting agreement between your shareholders, your directors and your management, which is crucial when, when things become tough. And you don't need to change company form or have a new one introduced. Correct. So yeah. it's just amending a constitution. Now, I say just. In a small business, that's not hard. It's often the the MD um, agreeing with his or herself that this is what we're going to do. It's just paperwork. But in a bigger company, a, a listed company, you have to put a resolution to your shareholders. Yeah. Um, and that's a very challenging thing to do. And you'd imagine it'd be quite hard to get up that kind of change, especially with the uncertainty around, you know, whether that form exists or is valid or, you know. Well, it's more what I think is beautiful about the fact that it's hard is that you are you are saying to your shareholders, hey, this is the way we're going to run the business yep. and you need to agree to that for the long term. And actually it's a really important regime for protecting the board and yep. the directors who are often doing this anyway mm -hmm. and saying, hey, you shareholders have to get on board. Oh, yeah, no, I was just saying, um, like, it would be much harder to try and convince a bunch of shareholders to accept a change in company form to a benefit yes, company agreed. than what you proposed. Absolutely. Agreed. I think the challenge, though, Mike, is that um, we haven't yet nailed how to make this a more a more common story for other businesses. So in the US, there's, there's something like 10,000 benefit corporations mm. and a couple of thousand B Corps. Benefit corporation is something that any company can do. They don't have to then get certified as a B Corp. They can be completely separate things. And what I'm interested in exploring in, in Australia and New Zealand in the next couple of years is how can we get more businesses thinking about this idea of accountability to purpose, even if you're not a certified B Corp? Yeah. 
So you can think of B Corp as the performance bar and a, a, and a commitment to purpose can be more of a governance commitment. And I think that that's a really interesting space in terms of growing the movement, getting more businesses to change. You've also got considerable overlap with um, entities like social enterprises and not-for-profits. How many of them become B Corps? The, the, you can't become a B Corp if you're a not-for-profit. Oh, okay. Unless it, it's a bit complicated. But essentially if you're a charity mm-hmm. and you rely on philanthropy, mm-hmm. we certify trading businesses. Yep. So that rules out most charities. Sure, sure. Um, the not-for-profit area is a bit more confusing. I mean, we're a not-for-profit, but we don't rely on any philanthropy. We, yep. we trade, we provide service to business. So that's yep. kind of beside the point. The social enterprise sector is a really interesting one. It tends to get defined as companies with some form of profit lock or asset yeah, lock. Yeah, it's, it's really just about the uh, proportion of um, profits that are reinvested and hitting a threshold. Correct, which is a really tight definition. Mm. It's a really important sector and there are some B Corps who are also social enterprises according to that definition. Yeah. There are some B Corps that um, or any businesses that, that use the phrase social enterprise more openly um, and I think that there is quite a clear distinction though. To be a B Corp, you do not have to have any form of profit lock. So we're, we're probably more in the for-profit traditional space than the social enterprises, but they definitely are all part of a conversation. And I think people starting businesses now really should put a little bit of thought into what's the right structure for what I want to do. It's really well said. Um, there are a number of different forms there, but I think it's interesting because, you, you know, you can't go around and, and say you're a B Corp if you're not a B Corp. But a lot of people are saying they're social enterprises without social enterprise certification, which I think is kind of an interesting grey area to explore. But I guess the common thread there is um, all of these businesses are thinking about different ways that they're making a social or stakeholder contribution beyond the bottom line, and that's what we should focus on. Yeah, it's about recognising intent. But look, there are great organisations like Social Traders that do certification for social enterprises um, and a bunch of other stuff as well. So yeah, I definitely think it's up to people to really understand who they're talking to when people are making any, when a business is making any claim back to them. So let's talk a bit about the sort of current and future work priorities for B Lab. I mean, you've got a huge amount on your plate already, but I see you're making some um, big moves in the, the governance space with the um, the B Council and the Horizon Council. Can you just f- fill us in on uh, those changes? Sure. Look, it's a bit of an internal exercise. Uh, one of the challenges I've found coming into the role is that. Um, we have a board like any organisation does and I'm accountable to the board um, and the board ticks off on the sort of bit, the typical business governance aspects that a board needs to look at. But then we have a B Corp community who I engage with a lot but it's getting too big for it to be just a personal kind of engagement piece and the board doesn't really have any direct connection with the B Corp community. Yet that's, that's probably our biggest core strength is leveraging this community of B Corps. So what's the governance with respect to the community? It's not the board's job. It can't just be my job as an individual. Um, we need to think about structures where the community can engage um, and, and make important decisions like supporting causes or engaging in activism or other things that not all B Corps will agree on. So the B Council is designed to find a space for the community to connect with us and to make sure that we're representing at the right times and they're involved in strategy setting. And then the Horizon Council is really meant to be the highest level. It's more structured as an event we want to run once a year where we just connect with obviously B Corps again, but also any other organisation that's connected with our broad mission to create change um, and make sure that our lens is is focused in the right opportunities and we're playing nice and working collaboratively with other organisations as well. So it's think of it as you know, horizons is a good way to look at it, but it's also about designing an overall governance model that that satisfies a wider outcome than just the, the immediate responsibilities of a traditional board. 
So that's kind of a how we're organising ourselves. It's yep. exciting for me because I think it'll unleash a lot more activity um, and connectivity in the B Corp community mm. who are just mm. amazing, mm. but they're businesses yeah. and, and they busy don't, people, busy people, and they don't agree on everything. And you know, when you're an industry association like looking after accountants, you tend to know what their problems are because yep. they're consistent, and you provide education back to them. Mm. You might do some lobbying. You might run an event. The power of B Corps is their diversity, but it makes it bloody hard to figure out, you know, what what they want to do. Well, you get we used to do these things where we'd have these sort of mixed lunches and stuff, and you get a whole of different types of businesses just in a room, sort of chatting about B Corp issues. Mm. Uh, and it's a funny experience because sometimes you just have very little in common, and sometimes you got a lot in common. But that's uh, that's probably the beauty of the diversity of the space. And look, we have seen businesses as we've matured as a movement. We've got the B Corp Climate Collective, which is B Corps who are engaged in, in climate advocacy. Oh, so in like interest forms. groups kind of thing. Correct. Yep. We've got an, um, a, a coalition of 26 B Corps globally has just formed called the B Beauty um, Coalition, and they're focused on tackling some issues relevant to the beauty industry and packaging and similar issues. So there's, a, there's this huge spirit of collaboration that I think surprises people how much B Corps, who are often serious business competitors, will still collaborate on solving a problem that they mm. both have. If it's in the interests of kind of the planet, I guess, it, you'll find B Corps will we'll put aside the immediate competition and work together. Um, so those opportunities we need to create and facilitate but not necessarily always lead and that's another interesting element that we need a governance model that can navigate that, uh, that sort of ambiguity. Yeah, that's really well said. Can people take this B Impact Assessment anytime? Any business can give it a go. It's mm-hmm. free to use. That's yep. one of the core um, goals that we have is that our tools are available to any business. Um, and, again, what part of what we do is look at ways that we can develop programs to get more businesses involved. So we've been working in New Zealand with the Department of Trade and Enterprise on a program for export-oriented businesses to, to help them use the tool to make them better businesses and therefore more attractive in export markets. So we look at programs, but any business can just head to the website it's bcorporation.com.au and they'll find their way to our impact assessment platform, which is a global tool, and they can start using it. Fantastic. And if people want to connect with you and learn a bit more about your history and your work, uh, how can they do so? They can find me on LinkedIn. They can also find me through the website. Fantastic. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for dropping by. Not at all, mate. Always good to talk. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.